Hey there, I'm Scott Mitchell, the editor of Schwartz Media's daily news show 7am. This is The Weekend Read. Every fortnight on the show, we feature the best writing in Australia, read to you by the people who wrote it. Today on the show, writer and photographer Anthony Hamm, with his piece from a recent edition of The Monthly. Surrounded by what we now know as the Kakadu National Park, the Northern Territory's Ranger uranium mine finally ceased processing in 2021 after nearly 50 years of operation. With the mine now closed, Kakadu's traditional owners are seeking that the government make good on the original promise of a national park in their care. But despite UNESCO World Heritage listing for its pristine wilderness and indigenous cultural value, a history of dysfunction and dispossession in the surrounding area could jeopardise the future site. Anthony will read his story, Park of the Covenant, after a short conversation. So good to have you, Anthony. Your piece is um, about the Kakadu. It's centred on its history. Before we get into it and the specifics, have you ever visited the Kakadu yourself? What does it evoke for you, that land? I've been up to Kakadu probably three or four times uh, over the years. It's it's a remarkable landscape. It's one of those landscapes where the stories of the past, the, the, the Indigenous stories, the First Nations stories are very much... They're not just painted on the rock walls. They, they're part of the fabric of the place. And it's almost an evocation of how we imagined the top end of Australia to be. It's that beautiful savannah country. It's red rock escarpments. It's a strong Indigenous presence. And so it, it really is, in a sense, you know, it's a much overused word, but it really is an icon of the North uh, in that sense. And this is a very different kind of mining story, I suppose. It's actually about what happens when the land is handed back when the mine wraps up. Why did you want to write about that? Well, partly because of that, because it is a different story and it's a story that still needs to be written because there are so many unanswered questions about that handback, about the cleaning up, particularly about the cleaning up of the site. I also wanted to write it because there's, there have been a number of missteps over recent years that I thought were, were indicative of, of some sort of current problem. But when I actually started researching the story, I realised that it was much more systemic than that. It was much more based around how it had always been done, about the, the very nature of the, the relationship between the Indigenous traditional owners and the and Parks Australia or the, or the federal government. This is one of those parks that's lauded for its joint management practices. It's a, it's a park where we sort of hold up as a model for the cooperation between traditional owners and Parks Australia. And for much of its history, it couldn't be further from the truth. And, you know, your piece talks about the want for renegotiation of land rights in the area and, and more importantly, you know, after industrial incursion, how the Land Rights Act still looms over potential discussions of renegotiation today. Do you think a successful renegotiation is, is actually possible for traditional owners of the Kakadu? I think it certainly is. Uh, I think... Uh, it needs to be reimagined. That's part of the problem. Uh, the original agreement uh, under which Kakadu was formed, a lot of the documents, a lot of the parliamentary debates, a lot of the uh, the correspondence that, that I looked at at the time, there was a lot of what you call coercion behind that. And so it was never a partnership. It worked in the early days because there was a lot of goodwill. There were a lot of very good people on both sides working 
but gradually those systemic problems came into play. And so the the, the Kakadu Board of Management is in some ways essentially dysfunctional. It's It doesn't work how it was set up to work and people, everyone you speak to, and this, this is, is on both sides of the debate, people don't know how you actually get onto the Board of Management, how the elections work, how how the decisions are made. And so a whole new structure needs to happen. And I think there are signs that the uh, Albanese government under and Tanya Plibersek in particular is open to the idea of doing it. And I think if they can do that, if they can set up a proper cultural heritage uh, management system, then it certainly is possible. Well, Anthony, I can't wait to hear you read your piece. Thanks so much for being with us. Thank you very much. Coming up after the break, Anthony Hamm will read Park of the Covenant. Hi, I'm Alison Crogan, arts editor for the Saturday Paper. Schwartz Media has launched a new weekly arts and culture newsletter, The Arts, featuring cultural criticism, profiles and provocations from the writers behind the monthly and the Saturday Paper, the arts will be delivered to your inbox every Tuesday. Sign up now at thesaturdaypaper.com.au slash newsletters. Park of the Covenant In January 2021, the Ranger Uranium Mine, surrounded by Kakadu National Park, finally ceased operations after nearly half a century. To outsiders, Ranger had always seemed like an anomaly. The mine was a deep and unsightly scar in the heart of Australia's largest terrestrial national park. Kakadu was inscribed on the UNESCO World Heritage List for its pristine wilderness and Indigenous cultural values in 1981. When the mine fell silent 40 years later, the complicated work of rehabilitating the land began. On June 30, 2021, Jabiru, the nearby service town where construction began in 1979, was handed back to the Mirar people on whose ancestral land the town and the mine were built. The handover was, said then Environment Minister Susan Lay, the start of a new chapter and a bright future for Jabiru that would support what she called the preservation of the cultural and natural values of Kakadu National Park. It was, she concluded, a proud day in Australia's history. Indeed it was, but the mine's closure and the return of Jabiru were also smokescreens the concealed Kakadu's dark history of dispossession and dysfunction. Should the current situation continue, Kakadu's story could become a tale of paradise lost. First Nations people have walked the wetlands and escarpment country of Kakadu for at least 65,000 years. One of Australia's oldest known human occupation sites, Majid Bebe, is located in the Jabaluka Mineral Lease, which is totally surrounded by the park. The idea of protecting what we now know as Kakadu National Park first surfaced in the mid-1960s, when Kakadu was a sparsely populated Wild West frontier between the Arnhem Land Mission Station of Owen Pelly, Gunbalanya, and Darwin. The first all-weather road from Darwin didn't reach Kakadu until 1974. At the time, interest in Kakadu was motivated more by mining companies eager to extract Kakadu's uranium reserves than it was by any concern for the region's wildlife, ecosystems or First Nations communities. It was an unusual time. The Cold War, angst over nuclear proliferation and popular anger in Australia over French nuclear tests in the Pacific squared off against the need for an economic windfall as a result of a global energy crisis. 
On the one hand, there was the idealism behind the push for environmental protections and Aboriginal land rights by the Whitlam government. On the other, the country's desperate need for foreign currency. In the tension between these two contradictory impulses lay the origins of Kakadu National Park. The push for the Ranger uranium mine began under the Gorton and McMahon governments, but it was under Gough Whitlam that Ranger and Kakadu became entwined as a package deal, with Ranger as the driving force. In October 1974, under the so-called Lodge Agreement, Prime Minister Whitlam and his Minister for Minerals and Energy, Rex Connor, confirmed a 50% government stake in the mine. The following day, the Prime Minister announced that Australia would be exporting uranium to Japan. By then, Ranger had acquired an irresistible momentum. Although the issue of land rights was gathering support, especially after the Whitlam government set up the Woodward Royal Commission in 1973, there was little doubt at the time that uranium would trump land rights. In July 1975, four months before its dismissal by the Governor-General, the Whitlam government announced a two-part inquiry to examine the environmental impacts of the mine. The second part of the report, by Russell Fox, then Chief Judge of the ACT Supreme Court, was released in May 1977. It contained the following conclusion. Quote, The evidence before us shows that the traditional owners of the Ranger site and the Northern Land Council, as now constituted, are opposed to the mining of uranium on that site. The reasons for the opposition would extend to any uranium mining in the region. Some Aboriginals had at an earlier stage approved, or at least not disapproved, the proposed development, but it seems likely that they were not then as fully informed about it as they later became. Traditional consultations had not then taken place, and there was a general conviction that opposition was futile. The Aboriginals do not have confidence that their own view will prevail. They feel that uranium mining development is almost certain to take place at Jabiru, if not elsewhere in the region as well. They feel that having got so far, the white man is not likely to stop. They have a justifiable complaint that plans for mining have been allowed to develop as far as they have, without the Aboriginal people having an adequate opportunity to be heard. End quote. In spite of this finding, the Fox report concluded that, quote, there can be no compromise with the Aboriginal position. Either it is treated as conclusive or it is set aside. We are a tribunal of white men and we hope and have reason to believe that the performance of our task will not be seen by Aboriginal people in a racial light at all. In the end, we form the conclusion that their opposition should not be allowed to prevail. End quote. Instead, there was a quid pro quo offer. In return for a uranium mine, the Commonwealth Government promised the traditional owners a national park, which we now know as Kakadu. In August 1977, Prime Minister Malcolm Fraser approved the Ranger uranium mine. Despite near-universal opposition within the Aboriginal community, the Fraser government remained eager for their imprimatur and placed intolerable pressure upon community leaders to publicly back the proposal. The chairperson of the Northern Land Council at the time, Kalarawai Yunupingu, told NLC members that, quote, if we don't sign the agreement, Mr Fraser has told me he has power to block the Aboriginal Land Rights Act and that he will stop funds to the outstations, end quote. Unipingo backed the project. Just in case, the Aboriginal Land Rights Northern Territory Act, which was passed in 1976 and became law in 1977, vested power in the Governor-General to override the veto given to First Nations peoples in projects of this kind, if such projects were deemed to be contrary to the national interest. 
and in case there was any remaining doubt, the legislation explicitly exempted the Ranger Mine from any veto power. Woodward said that to deny Aboriginal people a veto over mining would be to deny them the reality of their land rights, says Justin O'Brien, who was Chief Executive of the Gunjami Aboriginal Corporation from 2008 until September this year. That is exactly what happened. In a ceremony on November 3, 1978, the Commonwealth Government and representatives of First Nation communities of Kakadu signed two agreements. One paved the way for the Ranger Mine to proceed. The other created Kakadu National Park. As O'Brien tells me, you need to see Kakadu in its context. It's a place where a deal was done. Kakadu became the major compensatory piece for the loss of the veto, for the imposition of mining. It was, well, you'll get a national park. In truth, this was a 100-year lease signed when they were bent over a barrel, with uranium mining being forced upon the community. The cruel irony is that the very thing that was supposed to be a major benefit has been such a disappointment and such a divisive thing for Aboriginal people. Despite the fraught process surrounding the National Park's creation, the early years of Kakadu were a time of great optimism. Susan O'Sullivan, an Indigenous rights lawyer who has worked with Kakadu's traditional owners for more than two decades, describes it as a golden period, thanks to the quality of the bureaucrats that were drawn to Kakadu in the early years and the inclusion of First Nations people in decision-making, which was groundbreaking for the time. Kakadu exists on the lands of the Beninj Bungay peoples, who are grouped into several local descent groups or clans. Senior elders from the different clans were deeply involved in decision-making in the park and, together with the Commonwealth Government bureaucrats, a policy of joint management of Kakadu emerged and was ultimately codified in legislative reform by the Hawke government. Back then, says Peter Christofferson, a First Nations land manager in Kakadu who comes from a family of traditional owners, they were employing the right people within the right areas. There was an element of trust that people would do the right thing. There was also a strong sense of ownership of the park among Kakadu communities. When you read what was said at the time, says O'Sullivan, Kakadu National Park was not created for tourism. It was not created even, really, for World Heritage values. That wasn't a thing back then. It was a social impact mitigation measure for uranium mining. That's why they did it. That's how it was offered to Aboriginal people. The quid pro quo was, we're going to mine uranium. We're going to do that. In exchange, we're giving you, you, a national park. A lot of people don't understand that this was deeply embedded in the minds of Aboriginal people. They thought it was theirs. You get the mine, we get the park. At the same time, the situation for Kakadu's First Nations communities was dire. The current civic culture is one in which disunity, neurosis, a sense of struggle, drinking, stress, hostility, of being drowned by new laws, agencies and agendas are major manifestations, wrote Colin Tatz, respected anthropologist in his 1984 report, Aborigines and Uranium. He continued, Their defeat on initial opposition to mining negotiations leading to ranger and short-lived uranium mine Nabalek, the fresh negotiations on further uranium deposits Jabaluka and Kungara, new sources of money, the influx of vehicles, together have led the project to an unhappy verdict, that this is a society in crisis. As the first generations of Kakadu's elders and bureaucrats passed away or moved on, the early trust between the Commonwealth Government and First Nations communities frayed. And as the relationships that had held Kakadu together fell away, the structures of governance for the park fostered a growing sense of paralysis. 
Under joint management, an elected board became the peak decision-making body. It consisted of scientists, government representatives and members of local Aboriginal communities. Yet few members of Kakadu's First Nations communities with whom I spoke had ever voted or understood the process of nominating for the board. Bypassing traditional authority structures within First Nations communities, the board instead became a source of alienation for First Nations people. The Board of Management is a completely opaque process that makes the Papal Conclave look transparent, says O'Brien. It's not even clear who votes, and nor is it clear how people get represented on the board. It's all mostly in English, but even if it's in language, the ideas, the concepts, the bureaucratic mode in which everything occurs is just Canberra, Canberra, Canberra. Instead of negotiating directly with communities and with Kakadu's traditional owners, the Commonwealth Government deals with the board. When asked about the joint management model, Christofferson is searing in his criticism. Quote, I've always called it disjointed management, and we're on the brink of a divorce. The honeymoon's over. Yes, there are quite a few Aboriginal people employed, but the land is still suffering. It wouldn't matter if you employed another 100 Aboriginal people. It's about engaging with the correct people, with biodiversity and cultural management programs that meet the needs of traditional owners and satisfy the park's regulatory requirements. The one-size-fits-all approach in Kakadu over the last 40 years is obviously not working. If nothing changes, it will simply continue with the disempowerment and disengagement of our people. End quote. It's a common refrain. Historically, the employment of local Aboriginal people is very low, says O'Brien. Local Aboriginal people in the main have been several steps removed from management and employment in the park service. By the mid-1990s, locals were not getting any financial benefit from the park. They're not getting it from tourism. They're not getting jobs from the park. They're not getting jobs from the mine. They're not getting a say over where and how they can live. The roads aren't graded. Their houses are not maintained. Adding to the dysfunction is another structural roadblock. Kakadu sits within the portfolio of the Commonwealth Department of Climate Change, Energy, the Environment and Water. The Environment Department is not Indigenous Affairs, says O'Sullivan. It has nothing to do with native title at all, and nothing to do with Aboriginal organisations at all. Kakadu is in the wrong portfolio. For the governance arrangement to be in the Department of Environment is a diabolical mistake. And she adds, most of the money for Kakadu National Park is paying for public servants and consultants in Canberra. O'Brien agrees. You've got our largest national park with a complex history and our oldest human occupation site, a mining agenda, and that whole reserve is run by a bureaucrat with a small team in an offshoot of an offshoot of an offshoot of the mega department of the environment. The story Kakadu tells the world has begun to unravel, and it has everything to do with the historical structures that govern the park. Just how far Kakadu has strayed from its promise became evident in 2019, when Parks Australia built a new walking track to the summit of Gunlom Falls, one of the park's major attractions, with a natural infinity pool overlooking the waterfalls. Parks Australia was charged the following year with illegal construction after it emerged that the track strayed too close to a sacred site of the Jawan people. Four years later, the track remains closed. This serious breach was one of a number of missteps that led to intervention by then Minister Lay. After representations by local First Nations communities, some of who threatened to close the park entirely, the Minister sacked a senior bureaucrat and the Director of Parks Australia left his position. But no changes were made to Kakadu's governing structures, which have remained the same for decades. 
Advocates for change argue that only a new model, one in which the Commonwealth Government negotiates and consults directly with the traditional owners, can heal Kakadu. It's what lies behind a process aimed at renegotiating existing lease arrangements. There are already promising signs behind the scenes that the Commonwealth Government may be willing to take a new approach, and stakeholders are quietly hopeful that Environment Minister Tanya Plibersek may be ready to engage. This is something that the restructuring of the lease would do, restructure how people negotiate things on their country, says Christofferson, who is at the forefront of rehabilitating the Ranger Mine site, tasked with planting almost a million trees. Is it through the board or something more inclusive, he asks. O'Brien asks, why should we be sitting here in 2023 adhering to leases which were negotiated when people were over a barrel in the late 1970s, with the Commonwealth Government forcing uranium mine on them? The Board of Management is not where Aboriginal people make serious decisions, says O'Sullivan, because the Board of Management is a thing created by governments in the 1990s when a very centralised approach to Indigenous affairs prevailed. It's a 1990s model we've all moved on from. The world has changed. In 2023 in Australia, you deal directly with Aboriginal groups. That is the way you broker anything with Aboriginal people now. You meet people where they are, whether that's a prescribed body corporate or a native title group, or a traditional owner group under the Land Rights Act, and you enter into an agreement about what you as a government are going to do. Removing Kakadu from the environment portfolio could also provide the impetus for much-needed cultural heritage surveys which, remarkably, have never been carried out in Kakadu. A smaller-scale survey on the Ranger mine lease identified around 120 cultural heritage sites. According to O'Sullivan, who negotiated the survey with the mining company, in the Ranger project area, there is an agreement about protecting those sites, monitoring them and not damaging them. That level of protection of cultural heritage is so far above Kakadu National Park that it's unbelievable. You walk out of the mine and into the park and you can do whatever you like. There has never been a survey. Nothing's recorded, not even at the visitor sites, not even at rock art site or beard. There's stuff everywhere. And is any of it recorded? No. That's how they got Gunlom wrong, says O'Sullivan. Under current models, Gunlom could be the tip of the sword. There have been other Gunloms, says O'Sullivan. We just haven't discovered them yet. And there may be worse to come, she warns. There are environmental disasters unfolding. There are horses and donkeys and pigs and buffaloes wreaking havoc. Can we shoot them? The answer they're getting from the Board of Management is usually no. Saltwater and mimosa weeds are invading the wetlands, as well as other issues. Alongside the possibility that, in the absence of accurate cultural heritage surveys, Parks Australia and other stakeholders could stumble into a repeat of the Duke and Gorge debacle in Western Australia, Kakadu's World Heritage listing could be in danger. In July 1999, the World Heritage Committee met, says O'Brien. I was there when they debated whether or not to list Kakadu as in danger. It was only by a hair's breadth that they didn't. Now we've got fires out of control a massive drop in biodiversity and speciation, ferals and cane toads, and traditional owners, who are part of the cultural listing as well, who are disengaged, infuriated, sidelined and often taking the government to court. And then there's Jabaluka. The Jabaluka mine, also in the heart of Kakadu, is majority owned by Rio Tinto and has never fully proceeded. Protests in 1998 led to a clean-up and an agreement in which the company agreed not to develop the mine without the consent of the Mira. The Jabaluka area, however, remains outside the protections of the park, and Rio Tinto has never formally surrendered its right to mine the site. 
One way that it could get significantly, disastrously worse would be if we don't permanently protect Jabaluka, says O'Brien. Jabaluka is a jewel in the crown. What's on that mineral lease is completely and utterly priceless. These are the reasons why Kakadu is UNESCO World Heritage listed. Hundreds and hundreds of rock art galleries with thousands and thousands of paintings, archaeological sites, our oldest human occupation site. As long as the push for new lease agreements remains stalled by the pandemic, then a change in government, and then the focus on the failed referendum, Kakadu remains in peril, as it has been since the park was first created in 1978. In recent years, various traditional owners have threatened to close the park altogether. Could that happen if nothing is done? It doesn't run within us, says Christofferson, unless you really push us to some godforsaken place. We would rather negotiate and show that we want to move forward as a people and that we want to make it work. But people talk about these things because our voices aren't being heard. Christofferson is silent for a few moments. But that's government, isn't it? To hear more Weekend Reads, you can subscribe to The Weekend Read in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.